Well, if you're using the, uh, the church Bibles, uh, please do turn to page 296. Uh, for the rest of us, we're in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 24. For those of you on the ball, I'm not Rui. Uh, I had to swap with Rui at very short notice, so I'm very grateful to Rui for accommodating me in that. Also, we're in 1 Samuel 24 tonight, and you, again, if you're on the ball, you, you might say, well, what happened to 1 Samuel 23? That's going to be next week. We're not missing it out. We're just swapping it round. Uh, and uh, it doesn't matter from that point of view because we're not following something chronologically. The lessons of each chapter are very distinct. But 1 Samuel chapter 24, by way of a very quick recap, where are we? we we're looking at sometime 3,000 years ago or thereabouts, the first king of Israel, Saul, has a, an irrational jealousy over David, who's been promised to be the second king of Israel. And this irrational jealousy of Saul's is making him, is giving him this desire to, to chase David down, to find David and to, to kill him. It is quite irrational because David has done, in the eyes of everyone really sane, he's done uh, nothing wrong. Now, um, Saul has been uh, diverted uh, from that chase by a, a bit of an uprising by the Philistines. Uh, he's, he's now finished that, he's dealt with that, and now he's being consumed again by this jealousy. And uh, someone's told him uh, that uh, where, where David is likely to be. Let's pick that up then right at the beginning of 1 Samuel 24. What I'm going to do is um, I'm just going to read this passage. It's quite a long passage. I'll just interrupt myself uh, on a couple of occasions just to try and fill it out to give us a, a better picture of what's going on. Um, and then we'll spend the rest of the minutes that we have just focusing down on the theme for tonight, which is... May God be our judge. That's what David said uh, in 1 Samuel 24, but it's also the lesson that we want to bring to ourselves this evening. May God be our judge. So 1 Samuel 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. There it is. That's just a tiny fraction of it. En Gedi down there in the south of Israel, hard up against the Dead Sea. It covers literally thousands of acres uh, of land that looks very much like this. You've got mountains, you've got valleys, you've got a million and one hiding places, and that's where uh, David is. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Again, those of us who've had the privilege of, of going to this place will know that those wild goats, the ibex, are still there, still to be seen. Maureen and I have seen them many times, and I'm sure Ian's seen them many more. Uh, and, uh, of course, Ian, Dave, and Katie are going out this week uh, to see them again. I'm sure they will be there. The, the crags of the wild goats. So he's got 3,000 men. They're not all marching together like we might imagine a, a, a column of soldiers. They're spread out in this wilderness region of Israel looking for David and Saul is somewhere where they can find him if they find David. Now, it says then, Saul came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there. Well, that's not unusual. Um, 
one thing about En Gedi is that it's a roasting hot place. And so the shepherds down there needed to get their sheep out of the burning midday sun um, and they used the many, many caves there to do that. So many of the caves there doubled up as sheep pens. And this was one of them. So Saul found one. Uh, Why? It says Saul went in to relieve himself. This is where you get your giggles over and done with. Okay, but the Bible tells it as it is. Uh, he just went in uh, to, uh, into, to use this cave as a bathroom. And uh, unbeknown to him, here's the thing, David and his men were far back in that cave. Now the men said, this is the very day the Lord spoke of, when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now again, let's just think practically what it's like. You've got Saul on the outside. He's just coming in from that glaring sunshine. He goes into a cave of what to him would be pure darkness. His eyes wouldn't be accustomed to it. He would be able to see nothing in front of him. David and his few men, on the other hand, they're way back in the cave. Their eyes are already accustomed to the darkness. They're looking out towards the light, and they can see everything that's happening. So they see very clearly what Saul can't see, and they see Saul coming in and preparing himself to relieve himself. So again, David's crept forward, cut off a bit of the robe. Was he wearing the robe? We don't know. Again, thinking practically, he probably was not. That's why we have hooks on the back of our loo doors, isn't it? That when you go in to do your business, you hang up your coat. And if you've got a big regal thing upon you, you would have probably taken that off. So that robe is probably just somewhere nearby. Um, And and David cuts off a corner of it. But afterwards, verse 5, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. And then David went out. Now we're not sure what the gap is between Saul leaving and David following, but we find out in the following verses that there is a bit of a gap because it's quite clear that Saul doesn't recognise the face of David and he checks that the voice he's hearing is indeed David's because Saul would have known David quite well. So he's just left a little bit of a gap between them. So David went out of the cave and he called out to Saul, My Lord, the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. Just note the absolute respect and honour that David, who is being utterly wronged by this man, by his insane jealousy, yet still he is respectful. And still he recognises that Saul is, is in that position because of the Lord. 
And it's good to us, for us, I think, to remind ourselves, even today, because we live in an age where there is so much disrespect for our leaders, both in this country and overseas, we must remember Romans and other places in the Bible tells us everyone, Romans 13:1, everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. I think in this day and age we need to remind ourselves of that biblical principle when we find ourselves talking about those who lead us or those who are leaders of other countries. So David is utterly respectful. And then he says, see, 11, verse 11, see, my father. Now, this is a, a, a kind of got a double meaning because as king, Saul would be the father of the nation. But also, he is, don't forget, the father-in-law of David. So he addresses him in that personal way. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. And here is the theme of tonight. David says it twice in this dialogue. Dialogue. May the Lord judge between you and me top of the page verse 13 he goes on to say as the old saying goes from evil doers come evil deeds so my hand will not touch you David is there saying I am not an evil person I'm not the evil person you think that I am and evil deeds come from evil person people and again as Christians it's it's good to remind ourselves that in this world we ought to be distinctive. Remember, we ought to be of the world, but in the world, but not of the world. And folks should look at us as believers in God and see something different in our behaviour and in our speech to what people would expect. And then verse 14, David goes on, Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? So what he's saying there, he's saying, you're the great king of Israel. You've got all these troops at your disposal. What kudos is there for you, Saul, to go back to your people and say, hey, I killed David. It's like, it's, David is saying, it's like saying, I killed a dog. And by the way, it was dead before I killed it. You know, it's just, there's no kudos in it at all for Saul. And David is pointing that out. And again, brings us back to our theme. Verse 15, may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. And in verse 16, when David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord gave me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. And so it was. Although David was the second king of Israel, he was the king that brought all those 12 disparate tribes together under one nation. And Saul goes on, verse 21, Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Saul is really saying, if you were here last week, don't do what I did. Remember last week we thought of that priest that Saul wanted killed 
And yet it wasn't sufficient just to kill the priest. He wanted all his family killed as well. And that was uh, the awful kind of way things were done in that land in that time. And uh, Saul says to David, please don't do that to my family. So verse 22, so David gave his oath to Saul and they all went off happily together. Now it doesn't say that. It says David gave his oath to Saul. You'd have thought they'd have gone off happily together, wouldn't you? You'd have thought they'd have become friends and gone back to the palace. But they don't. It says, then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. And there is the most famous stronghold of En Gedi, a place called Masada. Again, many of us have had the privilege of going there. It's, it really is a wonderful outcrop of rock, quite impregnable, impregnable, easy to hold, easy to defend, very hard uh, to, uh, to, to overcome. Why did David go to the stronghold and not back to the palace? Well, he did that because he didn't believe a word that, Paul, that Saul had said. And he was right not to believe it. And if we carried on in, in this book, we'll find that Saul very quickly is again overtaken by this, 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 this jealousy which is just consuming him and once again tries to take David's life. So David doesn't believe him and yet David keeps his promise to Saul. And again, we haven't got time to go into it tonight, but if you read through the scriptures, you'll find that David goes out of his way to look after the family of, of Saul. But I want to use the rest of our few minutes together just to focus down on that theme that David has introduced. He cries out to Saul, look, he can see there's a great gulf between the two of them, but he says, may God be our judge. May God judge between you and me. And we need to hear this as well, 3,000 years later, because human nature hasn't changed. I want to just ask you the question, just show me, if, if by putting your hand up, I promise you I will not pick on you, speak to you, look at you even. But if you know that you've been subject to a huge miscarriage of justice, just put your hand up now. Okay. See, it happens. It happens. A huge miscarriage of justice. Let's come back to that. Why do we need to hear these words? May the Lord be our judge. We need to hear those words because human nature hasn't changed. We continue to have enemies. Uh, We have disputes. We fall out with one another. And it's not something that just happens outside the church walls, even within a church. People fall out one with another. And when we do that, we tend to be gripped by something. Things go out of all proportion. And we're gripped like Saul is gripped. And we sometimes can become irrational in our thinking, like Saul became irrational. And if you're, especially if you think you've been wronged, some old human nature bubbles up and we want to see justice done, don't we? We want to see the person that we're in dispute with somehow lose the argument. We may even want to see them publicly humiliated. I'm not sure there's something about this. We want to win and be seen to win. It is irrational. And yet Jesus takes up the same theme that David plants here uh, in Matthew 7 and in so many other places in the Bible. Jesus is saying, don't judge. It's not your position to judge. And when he says that, he goes on often to explain why we are not in the right position to judge. And you sort of think, well, if we can't judge, what happens? 
Do we really just have to, to sit back and, uh, and give it to God and, and just watch and see what he does? In one sense, yes. In one sense, we do need, and it's so hard to do, we do need just to let go. There's a book, isn't there? Let go and let God. Uh, and that's really what we have to do. But does that mean we do nothing? No. The Lord Jesus makes it even tougher for us. He says in, uh, in Luke in chapter 6, verse 27, Love, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. That's tough, isn't it? Isn't that tough? And yet that's what the Lord Jesus says to us. That's our approach to our enemies, to those with whom we might be in dispute. And we're going to come back around our tables in just a few minutes' time and think a little bit more about that verse. But there's another reason why we should be saying and doing, let God be our judge. And that reason is this. We might think we make good judges, but we would get it wrong. I used to work in Old Bailey, the street in the city of London. I used to work right opposite the law courts. And I remember being there in uh, October 1989. Uh, there was, we, I worked in a, uh, a building that was six stories high. And I happened to be on that day on the sixth floor in a conference room with some other people. And I was just looking out the window, as you do in meetings. And, uh, and outside the window was, was like a sniper all dressed in black with his rifle ready. You know, a marksman, just there outside the window. Well, uh, showing that we weren't at all interested, we all went to the windows and we had a look around to see what's going on. And there we could see that there were these marksmen on all the buildings, all the building roofs, including the law courts opposite. And it was the day when, and some of you who are older will recognise this, the day that the Guildford Four were released. These were four people who had been convicted 15 years previously for planting bombs in two pubs in Guildford. 15 years they had spent in prison before their appeal found them to be not involved, not guilty, and they walked free. And that's just one example of so many more that we could talk about. Uh, Jeremy Bamber is another case that comes into mind. He's been in the news again. He's been in prison over 30 years for the White House farm murders, convicted of murdering his mother, his father, his sister, and her two children. And yet still, they're uncovering new evidence. And so there's a new appeal when he's saying, I did not do it. See, I don't know if he did. I don't know if he didn't, and nor do you. We would get it wrong when we stand in judgment of other people. But God doesn't. And Abraham, one day when he was communing with God, trying to find out God's heart for a a, a city that was so full of sinful people, and he was trying to find out, well, God, what's your view of these people? Uh, but whatever it is, he says these wonderful words in Genesis 18. He said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? See, Abraham recognized that God gets it right. And that's why we should rest in his judgment. He will get it right where we get it wrong. And actually, in my own Christian life, I found this quite a comfort, a real comfort to me. Sometimes, I know we do it for the best of reasons, and we do it by way of getting to know one another, but people have said to me over the years, was your mother a Christian? Was your father a Christian? Is your brother a Christian? 
is your sister a Christian? And I've come to feel that this is not my domain to answer. That's a question only for God. You see, I thank God for my parents. I had wonderful parents, loving parents. I couldn't have been brought up in a better way. If you look at me and you think I've been spoiled, that's my fault, all right, not their fault. They were great, but they didn't speak of faith overtly. They didn't go to church. How am I to think of them? What comfort can I have knowing what I do know from the scriptures? This is the comfort. I know that the judge of all the earth will get it right. And when I go to that place, remember, that we call heaven, it's a place of no tears. And so I'm not going to shed tears now over my parents. I leave that in God's hands. He's the judge of all the earth and he will do right. So as almost we come to the end of our time, I want to just introduce one miscarriage of justice that's in the Bible. There are so, so many I could dwell on. But I want to go into the New Testament and talk about a miscarriage of justice that all four gospel writers write about this guy. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they all name him. Uh, One of the gospel writers, Mark, says that he is notorious. That's not a nice thing to be. That means that he's a bad lot. Okay, This guy, he hasn't just slipped off the rails once. He hasn't just done one thing wrong. He is a perpetual criminal, notorious, not a good guy to be. And he was living at the time of Jesus uh, when those in, uh, in Israel hated the fact that their country was under, Jew, uh, was under Roman occupation. And from time to time, the Jews rebelled against the occupying Romans. And this man took place in one of those, took part in one of those rebellions. And the Bible tells us that during that rebellion, he committed murder. Now, unfortunately for him, he was caught. And he was taken uh, probably to the barracks, which is next door, uh, the, uh, the, the, um, the barracks which was hard up against the Temple Mount, hard up against the, uh, the temple there, a place where all the uh, Roman soldiers were, were based and garrisoned. Well, he was taken there, probably, and he was awaiting the inevitable outcome. And the inevitable outcome was that he was going to be taken out and put to a most brutal death, the death of crucifixion. And I guess when he heard the guards coming towards his door and pulling back those great bolts or whatever it was that held the door closed, I guess he thought, well, that's it. My time is over. I'm done for. And yet the guards came in, and we don't know the exact words that they used, but they said, you're free to go. You're free to go. As if you've done nothing wrong. What a miscarriage of justice. But when we read that story in the four Gospels, we find that he was only free to go because of Jesus. And Jesus suffered the death that he knew he deserved, and yet he went free. What a miscarriage of justice. And his name was Barabbas. Very Curious name, really. Bar Abbas means son of the father. When I was doing this study, I thought to myself, well, do you know, we as believers, we take on that name, Bar Abbas. If I'm a Christian, if I have committed my life to the Lord Jesus, if I'm trusting in his death and his resurrection, 
I become adopted into his family. I don't deserve it, but that's the reality of it. And I become a son of the Father in heaven. And you become a daughter of the Father in heaven. But only because of Jesus. Only because he took my place, even though he was utterly innocent. And I was completely guilty. Peter describes it like this in in 1 Peter chapter 3. Christ died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring me to God. Christ died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Christ died. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. You see, my human nature, when I look out into this world, is to cry out for justice. What about that woman, Anne Sekoulis? Yeah, the American woman who allegedly drove her car on the wrong side of the road, knocked over a guy from his motorbike, Harry Dunn, he was killed. And she fled the country, didn't she, under the guise of having diplomatic immunity. What did Harry's family do? They immediately go out to the USA. They want justice. They've come back. They haven't got justice. So other members of their family have now gone out to the States. Why? They want justice for Harry. And and I find this odd, that when I look at the world, I want justice. If you ask me about that case, what should happen to this woman, Anne, I say, bring her back. I'd love to see her come back. I'd love to see her in the courts. I'd love to see her standing justice. But when it comes to my life, I don't want justice. I don't want it. I want to be able to rely on the judge of all the earth, who in other places is described as the God who does not repay us as our sins deserve, who does not repay me according to my wrongness. I don't want justice for myself. I want grace. And in the Lord Jesus, I find this grace. I find that the most incredible, huge miscarriage of justice has already taken place for me. The guilty, the righteous has given his life for me, the unrighteous. So if I ask that question again, at the end of this little talk, as I asked at the beginning, have any of you been subject to a huge miscarriage of justice? If you could put your hand up, then I'm not asking you to. If you can put your hand up and recognize that in Jesus, that's exactly what's happened to you, then this table is spread for you. Amen.